Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you? Doing pretty well, all things considering. How are you today? Yeah, all things considered. Uh, so this episode is part two of what you heard uh, in the episode right before this, and maybe yesterday, if you're listening to this in real time. This is part two of our conversation with our friend Bill Thomas, who discusses the Colonial Parkway murders. Bill Lee continues his conversation with us about those murders, the Parkway murders that happened back in the 80s. His sister, of course, uh, Kathleen Thomas, she was 27, and she was murdered with her girlfriend, Rebecca Andowski, who was 21. That happened on October 12th, so right around the uh, anniversary here in 1986. And there were other couples. Um, I think they totaled four couples, plus a couple, uh, a few others that might have been linked to it, but... Uh, Bill has been an advocate for this for years, and he is uh, a friend of the show, and he brings a lot to the table every time he comes into the studio, and he's also very um, complimentary about the conditions in the studio. Yes, and so uh, if you haven't listened to part one yet, uh, we recommend that because this these conversations go together. And Lance, now the bad news uh, of the day. Big announcement, big announcement. You were right all along, Tim. You will not be joining me on the boardwalk in New Jersey for a cup of coffee any weekend in the near future. That is accurate. You were right the whole time, Tim. I, you're right. You're right now. Now I see that you're right. I was right, but um, I'm not proud of it. I'm not happy today. Uh, the American Crime Fest has been canceled, and uh, and we are no longer affiliated with the American Crime Fest. And uh, we are so sorry that this happened. It's really such a frustration, and 
depressed moment for us to be perfectly honest about all this. We are so sorry we dragged all of our friends into this and it's uh it's canceled. Well, you're right. We are no longer affiliated with the American Crime Fest. It is unfortunate that it was canceled, but as we've been told by a few people, maybe it was for the best that it happened now and the way things had been trending internally, I think that that's probably accurate that it's probably best that it happened now and it didn't turn into a um, sort of an S show on the day of. Um, that being said, it sucks for us a little bit, but I'm really more disappointed that this amazing lineup of presenters and podcasters and advocates mostly who were given this platform to talk about their cause and to talk about the things that they're passionate about to have people who have agreed to go on a stage and talk to people about wrongful convictions, their personal stories, their stories about their family members and how they're advocating for uh, justice in in their cases. That's all gone um, because of a business decision that we had no control over. And we're going to do our best to make something out of this anyway. So just stay tuned in the next uh, week or so um, here at the... Uh, Carl Space Studios in the think tank, as we call it. There's uh there's at least um there's at least two people, maybe four, maybe six, who are brainstorming ways to six dozen. Six Lance, dozen. Let's be well, honest. We we've got a brain trust, a growing brain growing trust, brain trust in the think trick in the think tank in the, in the crawl space think tank. If you can uh, imagine that, so you you crawl down this tunnel and there's this think tank and there's a bunch of people in there saying, how can we make this better? But um, joking aside, it will uh, be, uh, there, there will be something that will come out of this, uh, whether it's a form of maybe a virtual, you know, live Q and a or panel with all of the, uh, as many of the panelists that we lined up for this particular event maybe we could do something over the course of a couple of weekends in november where nobody has to fly out to uh a convention center on the ocean of the atlantic as much as having a coffee with me on saturday morning is uh is tempting uh maybe we could just do that virtually and then listen to uh bill thomas and uh Gemma hoskins chat over a virtual fire yeah, so we will figure it out. There are options, and we apologize, and we feel terribly about it. And if you booked tickets, please contact the American Crime Fest organizers. We're trying to move forward now, so uh, please enjoy part two of Bill Thomas in the Crawl Space Studios discussing the Colonial Parkway murders. Did we just meet at the ASOC conference this past spring? We did, April yeah. 2019. I, I feel like we're old friends already. I know. It's I, only I, been six months. I can't, I truly can't believe that we only met six months ago. I know, it feels happened. like six years. A lot it has does. happened in six months, and yeah. and not in a negative way. You're not, not like saying, oh my God, we've been hanging out with Bill forever. It's just the comfortability factor is here. I, I just, you know, that came up early, just a little while ago, and I just can't believe it's only been six months. Yeah. Honestly, it feels like we've known each other for a yeah. couple of years. Um, feels but good. it, um, no, you know, Jim and Jim can be a little abrupt, you know, mm -hmm. Jim's like this genius guy, but he's can be uh, a little clipped sometimes in the way he interacts with the world. And yeah, the first time he did it, I was like, well, what did I do wrong? You know, that kind of thing. But he explained 
hey, you know, why, why he's trying to keep his palate clean, as, as you said. And I have to respect how the process works. It's very interesting. Was it was he holding back just for for camera purposes? No, this is this, this is no camera. This is just you know yeah, Jim and Bill in a rental car kind of thing, and we're just you know on the Colonial Parkway, and I'm starting to point out stuff. And it's funny we we shot a bunch of footage there last year, and he said to me a couple times, "Save that for the camera. I want to hear that for the first time while we're rolling." Yeah, so that I can offer the most, you know, genuine first impression reaction as possible. Because, you know, while the cameras aren't rolling and we're standing there, you know, at the site where the car was found, I'm starting to point out all sorts of things. And Jim's like, wait, 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 wait. just hold on. Yeah. I, I, I just want to hear that once, you know, and then I'll talk to you more about it. Yeah, you know, then it's we're all, at, it's it's almost actually kind of reminds me of the way you film a comedy movie, to be honest. Okay, because it's like uh, you you say something off script, and it's like, well, w- you know, wait, let's do that, let's yeah. do that when everyone's ready for that, because we want the honest reaction, and that's when you get the best stuff. That's interesting, though, that Jim is a you know law enforcement professional and FBI profiler, and he can talk to you about this personal case, and he can still balance that with. Um, being a producer, like a, a television, yeah, he's got know, got a lot of hat. stuff going on in his head. I would imagine, and uh, I guess he doesn't have the improv skills that the two of you have. <laughs> well, he's never done murder mystery dinner theater. Well, right? there Comedy. you go. Yeah, I'm sure you guys have talked about that at length um, <laughs> <laughs> with Jim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he's he calls both. us up. He's like, guys, I got an idea for a murder mystery script. I don't know where to go with it. I got to find the funny in it. I got to find the funny in it. This guy's got a magic pair of shoes. They get stolen. What do I do? <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, now, you know, Jim was a writer-producer on Criminal Minds, which has yeah. just wrapped a very successful who knows how many years on TV. Yeah. So he's got to look for new avenues for yep. his, his uh, creativity. Very impressive guy and company, and uh, really happy that you're uh, working with them. We, we, of course, had Jim Clementi on the Missing Maura Murray uh, podcast to discuss um, – what he thought a profile of Mora's killer would look like. Oh, wow. If Maura I've was never killed. heard the episode where Jim talks about uh, uh, profiling uh, a, a perpetrator in the Mora Murray case. Yeah, it was interesting. We we kind of uh, gave him some information. He didn't really know much about the case coming into the interview, and so we kind of uh, fed him some information, and he basically took the path of if Mora had been killed, what that person what their behavior would be like mm-hmm. and where they would live and things yeah. like that. It and was it, really interesting. It was really cool to get somebody on with his uh, pedigree, with his background, uh, to talk about something that wasn't um, right like in his wheelhouse. He, yeah. he had very, very uh, basic information about the case, and it was so refreshing to hear someone tell you something that you didn't think of because you're so immersed in it. Like where her car was found was it right off the highway and at first i think we were like yeah it was right off the highway he goes well what's right off the highway yeah what's two that mean minutes? to you and we right. were like we're like well depending on which highway like between like 10 and 20 and he's like that's not right off the highway and we're like oh that's actually a really good point it's not yeah. that yeah. it's not right off the highway at all he goes so what does that tell you then we're like i don't know jim you tell us <laughs> no <laughs> that fresh perspective and i mean this is a guy who trained with john douglas and mm-hmm. i mean you know he's the real deal and um it's fascinating, actually, to have a conversation with him about uh, about an unsolved murder case, and to you know to hear uh, to see the wheels turning, 
um, through the plate in his head. And, and um, no, it, it really is fascinating. It's yeah. funny. In, the, in that example, how far, what, is this off 93 if you went up? It's about a half an hour, say, from 93 maybe, yeah. and probably 10 minutes 10, from, 91. from 91. Got so, it, yeah. got it. And so I think his point was that it, this wasn't like a truck driver driving the highways who maybe dipped off for gas and disposed of a body right along the highway. Correct. It was something that mostly locals travel, and that was kind of his point. Right. It's funny. I was, uh, I'm a University of Massachusetts at Amherst grad, and I was just up there a couple of weeks ago. Um, some folks are thinking about holding a forensic genealogy conference ne- next year. Oh, yeah, yeah. At the university, and so I was up there with two forensic genealogists, and... Um, uh, the Redgraves, Anthony and Lee Redgrave, um, who are with the DNA Dope Project, really amazing couple. And uh, they asked me to come up and talk about the possibility of holding a conference like this. And, of course, I was back on the University of Massachusetts campus for the first time in a couple of years. Um, and we ended up talking about Maura Murray because of our mutual interest in the case and being back in Amherst and, you know, what that was like for me. And... Um, by the way, I thought UMass was looking fantastic. A lot of things I recommended a few years ago at a meeting with the chancellor, not that they did them because I pointed <laughs> them out, have been done. Yeah. And so there's new buildings on campus, and uh, they've renovated the campus center. They're rebuilding the student union building, and there's students everywhere, and that was really kind of fun to be up there for the day. Yeah. And I thought, you know, i got to get back up here more often now. You know, those students are, you know, they don't want to hear my stories from a million years ago. <laughs> but um, it was great being back there. But it's funny, it, it sort of put Mara, Mara's disappearance kind of top of mind uh, for me again, you mm-hmm. know, being back on campus. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so what do you do when you uh, pull up into campus and, and you were talking about Mara? What, what was the... What was the nature of that conversation? Well, just you know the, the you know what what the town is like and campus are like now versus what they were like when she was an undergrad, gotcha. and of okay. course I was there you know years before. Um, just you know, kind of the topography and how someone, let's say she was headed north, uh, you know how she would have left campus and town, and I know you know from from listening to other episodes of of your podcast and watching the television series a little bit about um, places where she was seen Mm -hmm. and you know, you can sort of track a little bit of her trajectory at least while she was in, in Amherst. Yep. Liquor store, ATM highway. Right. Exactly. And again, this is in an environment where there were more video cameras um, scattered around security cameras of different types than there were back in the era of mm-hmm. the Colonial Parkway murders. Yeah, uh, It's funny, I go out and speak to students uh, pretty frequently about our case, and people are always asking me questions like, well, is there any security cam footage? And it's like, except for 7-Eleven, you know, not too many folks had, had security cameras. There was no highway cameras? I forgot if we even no. asked you that before. No, I, I, don't, I don't know that you did. Um, but we predate all that stuff. Of course, yeah. we predate... DNA coming out of the lab too so there's and it's funny I mean students will ask me all the time well could they have called on their cell phone and it's like this is 1986 there is no cell phone there is no internet 
Um, security cameras are extremely rare. Um, I mean, a lot of that stuff came online from a security cam perspective after 9-11. Mm, right. We've seen a lot of changes in the last... Yeah, what? and the bombing, the Boston bombing, too. I feel yeah. like that changed a little bit. Yeah. Wow. And it's funny, the you know, in, in, in the Boston bombing example, there's a situation where all of that security camera footage from retail right. stores mm-hmm. lining the street um, who weren't necessarily placed there to record a bombing or even to record the Boston Marathon crowds mm-hmm. uh, and runners uh, out front. But, you know, the FBI and, and the Boston Police Department, the Massachusetts State Police did an amazing job of moving very quickly yeah. to kind of recreate. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot of us saw that stuff on television. Yeah, they asked for citizens' help, too. I think think that was sort of a an interesting uh, step that, you know, isn't taken very often, I no, guess. No, I think they, know? yeah, they definitely looked at the um, situation. There was hundreds of people there. Somebody must have seen something. So, yeah, I feel like I feel like it was a no-brainer for them to just say, we people saw something. We need to ask the people, what did you see? Yeah, although there was, uh, you, we also saw the downside of some of that, too. Remember when they very quickly yeah. were, yeah. M- yeah. Mi- sadly, misidentifying mm-hmm people as potential perpetrators who ended up being completely innocent um, and people were, you know, getting way ahead of themselves, you know, identifying potential suspects and saying it's so-and-so and and it turned out not to be. Right. And then trying, yeah, pointing out the person then trying to identify the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you you see, you see the issues with uh, online sleuthing, you know, in, in a, a couple of days, you know, and we still deal with that issue today. I mean, we talk about it all, all the time, basically. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, we're, we're part of that community it, also. It's there. It's happening. You just have to figure out how to wrangle it. Well, I think like a lot of things in life, one of my favorite expressions is always trying to find that balance. In yeah. other words, I think that the interest in true crime and the participation of audience members like the Crawl Space and, and uh, Maura Murray communities it can have great benefit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look, I'm willing to stay up till past my bedtime to talk to uh, a guy who thinks he might have information yeah. in, in my sister's unsolved murder case. Now, obviously, I've had this conversation, you know, dozens and dozens of times. I actually said this to the guy last night because he hadn't heard from me yesterday because I was at meetings. And he he said, well, I assume you've already gone to the FBI and your lawyers. And I was like, you haven't told me anything that I would... He thought that you went to the FBI and your lawyers just because he, he well, contacted you? Well, first of all, I don't think I have any lawyers. I haven't needed any lawyers. We have uh, Lance Reinstein, our Esquire, Esquire, right oh, here. Oh, yeah. yes. Thank yeah. you. So, okay, this guy reaches out to you and he's he, with information. He says he has information and you're going to get on a call. When you get on the call, he says, I just assumed you already went to the FBI and your lawyers. Which I thought was a little a little strange. I'm not. I will go is to that the a FBI. Red flag to you that this guy doesn't have anything, or is it more like, wow, maybe he does have something? Uh, well, I just concerned. thought it. W- I just thought it was odd. I mean, I it's actually odd. said to the guy, "Look, I've had this very ex- same exact conversation scores of times before. So understand, I'm more than happy to have this conversation with you. But there's no way I go to the FBI and my lawyers, of whom I have none." To discuss, you know, talking with you tonight, you haven't told me anything particularly substantive yet. 
he did get into a lot more specifics. And if I can figure out if there's something there, obviously I'm going to turn that over to law enforcement. But I just, I found it a, a little ironic. Um, and it's funny, he's in a queue of like three or four other people who reached out to us in the last 24 hours directly, it seems, as a result of uh, the television show coming on, as near as I can tell. Great. All these folks are reaching out to us. Please call me. Here, you know, Great. I, I want to talk to you about the Colonial Parkway murders. I feel like this is uh, back in the day, if someone does something like this, because they don't have the outlet of social media to maybe have a release, Like I feel like more people talked about their crimes back then because they just they needed to release it somehow. You talking about perpetrators? Yeah, I'm just I'm just you know coming up with a, an idea about you know why someone would reach out, you know, so many years later, thirty years later, for to to say I have information on this because they saw an ad for a TV show. I I feel like they might have heard something from somebody because that person just needed to uh, an outlet for it, and then that person's account when they went to the police just got lost in the mix. I just created that entire scenario in my head. Well, maybe so. I, I still find it a little bit baffling that people will come to us. Um, and I, sometimes I've thought to myself, I don't usually let these words cross my lips, but I have thought to myself, where have you been for the last 30 years? Right. Okay. So that, right. My, my seven minute question or observation was basically that. Like, why do you think if they had information Where's Where did that go? Well, the experts tell me, because I've asked this question before, because over the 33 years in the Colonial Parkway murders, a lot of people have come forward, especially in the last 10 years, since the families have gotten more heavily involved. And, you know, I've been much more involved in, in pursuit of answers in the Colonial Parkway case. Um, they tell me that um, situations change. In other words, relationships and People die. People get divorced. Work relationships are are, are 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 changing, and so things that people might not have been willing to discuss at one point are now uh, changed by circumstance, and so people will come forward now. And it's funny. I think the just the the advent of this new television series I think is going to bring um, people forward and it's funny one Definitely of the will. one of the investigators said to me oh you ain't seen nothing yet <laughs> oh I'm sure yeah so then was that your experience with that person you spoke to last night is that someone who who knew someone or he thinks might be involved or something like that um, yeah, without getting, you know, okay. getting into any specifics. Yeah. Interesting. And, and it's funny, you know, he, he's put down a few markers. I've got to circle back with some law enforcement people yeah. and say, he's referenced this incident and this incident. And I never, never lived in Virginia. Yeah. I never lived near Williamsburg. My sister and my older brother, Richard, were both brought there at different times by the United States Navy and their service in the Navy. Kathy, after graduating from the Naval Academy and Richard, my older brother as well. Um, so I've never lived in Virginia. And so, for instance, this guy referenced um, other criminal acti- significant con- criminal activity that I have no knowledge of, but I can circle back with some law enforcement folks and say, hey, this guy's referencing this and this. It, did, that, did that happen? My guess is that these things did, and these would be 
you know, pretty memorable, I think, from a law enforcement perspective. But it's very, it'll be very interesting for me now to try to nail down some more information. Now, he's referring me to another guy that he wants me to talk to who also might be able to fill in some blanks here. Um, and it's all news to me. Yeah. But it does line up with a few things that I know. Sounds like a pretty credible source, and I know, Lance, when we've done some uh, more Murray stuff, and we'll hop on the phone with people um, mostly years ago, but um, you kind of look for things that connect to stuff you've already heard or things that you know to be true, and that sounds like that was kind of the case with him where he was hitting on some things you knew, and then he went further. Right, and of course, one of the things I want to try to do in all of these situations is try to draw these people out, and you know whether the FBI likes this or not, doesn't really matter from my point of view because remember we're talking about 33 years of stops and starts and some significant disappointment on the part of the families so if someone reaches out to me I'm going to speak to them first now what I try not to do is if someone's got something that might have just even a small percentage of a shot of being something meaningful I am going to turn it turn it over to the investigators because I cannot judge ultimately, whether this might line up with something that they know about a particular person or situation. You know, in other words, it might make a a bell go off in, in our FBI agent's head that, and I, you know, she knows things I, I'm never going to know. And so ultimately, once I sift through this a little bit, I am going to try to get this information to her. And of course, this guy had said to me, he wanted to talk to me and he didn't want to talk via email or text or any of that stuff. He wanted to talk over the phone. Now, you know, is that significant? I'm not sure. But once we got to the phone, he starts naming names. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. He's specifically saying this person is responsible for this no, Well, he's not sure about that. But he's saying, I think, you know, your investigators should be looking into the background on this guy and that guy and, and, and so on. Were okay. those names you had heard before? No, no. Really? And it's okay. funny, I, you know, um, there I am dutifully writing it all down. Uh, and again, you know, we'll see where it goes. I'm not saying, you know, we cracked the Colonial Parkway murders last night on the phone. But, you know, he's in line with, I'm not kidding, four or five other people that have reached out to me just recently. And I, I thought to myself, I think I'm going to try to knock off one of these a night because you can often talk for an hour or more. When you said, when you say in line, he's in line with the same information that you're No, no, but I've oh. got like four or five other people who've reached out to me just in the last, you know, few days yeah. who've said, I'd like to talk to you about the Colonial Parkway murders or I'd like to talk to you about your sister's murder. And you, you have a pretty good sense of what a person's like on their first impression when you're on the phone. I mean, if this guy sounded at all sort of tapped, you'd probably identify that. I would gee, gee, we've only run into that a few <laughs> right. d- dozen times. <laughs> right, right. So you're used to that. But as you both know, sometimes you talk to people that may be more than a bit damaged by whatever. And I still have to remind myself, just because somebody comes across as a little bit odd or a little out there or whatever, that doesn't mean they're not worth talking to. Well, here's the thing. You're talking about someone who is telling you details of a uh, of a terrible, horrific crime that obviously would take a damaged person to commit. So you're you're not you're not tapping into a, 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 
collection of people that are very well put together in the first place. But I think that goes both ways, too. Like, you, you can talk to someone who sounds very, uh, yeah. with words all put there, all put together very, very well, and uh, sounds real logical, but it's not the case when you get deeper. Yeah, I mean, we have an expression that I like a lot, which is, oh, I'm not sure this person's completely screwed down to the deck. Oh, I like that. I like that one. And, yeah. you know, my dad was a naval officer, and <laughs> my older brother and, and younger sister. So, you know, but at the same time, I still have to remind myself, don't judge. You know, you're also talking about people that, um, we're talking about something that happened 30 years ago. Mm. So memories are fuzzy, sometimes mine included. And... And then, you know, so you've got the passage of time and you might mix in the use or abuse of drugs, alcohol, Mm -hmm. psychological abuse, what have you. So not everybody's going to be able to give you the most coherent narrative. Um, The other thing is I'm struggling with this on a personal level. As you guys could probably tell from our previous conversations, I try to approach things in a pretty logical way. But remember, ultimately, I'm seeking answers in Kathy's murder and the Colonial Parkway murders. And I think I have to remind myself, Bill, you're looking for logical answers in in an inherently illogical act. I mean, Mm. for the most part, killing someone, except perhaps in self-defense, is not really a particularly smart, logical thing to do. And so people are performing these acts in a in a at a time and a place when they're not necessarily in a in their right mind. And so when I'm trying to take this sort of hyper logical, well, why did this happen? And then you know, like why would were these young people killed? Ultimately when we find the answers to the Colonial Parkway murders, and I think we will, I'm not sure that it's going to be a very satisfactory answer. It's just going to be an answer. Yeah. I mean it, do you hope that it'll be this nice neat package but realistically it's probably not going to be that so you're preparing yourself for it i think it's the latter i yeah. th- i think this whole thing just like murder is is messy and and um i'm not sure all the colonial parkway murders are even necessarily all related yeah. and so i i but, uh, you know, I'll take a series of messy answers rather <laughs> sure. than no, no, an- answers, no answers yeah. at all. Yeah, even if you were to find a killer or killers and they were to be arrested and brought to some theoretical justice, like, I can't imagine the, the family members of the Golden State Killer victims are particularly satisfied. I mean, they're happy no. that the guy's it's, outed and That's and, about in as jail. good a package as you can get wrapped up. But you don't get any emotional answers you don't from get that. An- yeah, you'll, no. would, you don't know but, why but, that guy did you, that. You got one guy one series of crimes yeah you know and it's it feels very neat but still it, yeah you're where's right where's the mean, emotional it, satisfaction where's it's not there i mean he's even getting like his his justice is like prevailing right. here but still like well the guy did kill you know my brother or my yeah. you know my my sister or something mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and uh, you know on top of that joseph d'angelo i mean i think they've got this guy dead to rights and yet uh, it's not like he's talking. Right. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, 
searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, Canada, a vast, idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. And it's funny, one of the things I, I was struggling with um, uh, listening to to uh, uh, a true crime writer, uh, I went to hear her speak about her book, her name's Ann Howard, um, and she wrote a book called His Garden, and uh, which is about a series of murders in Connecticut, mm-hmm. and a uh, fascinating, wonderful writer and an interesting person. I, I had coffee with her a few months ago and went to hear her speak. But it's funny, when she was talking about uh, William Devin Howell, who's the perpetrator in in the murder series that she explores, I think it's seven or eight prostitutes um, from the Waterbury-Torrington area of Connecticut. Um, the way she described William Devin Howell, who by maybe not by coincidence, is from Newport News, Virginia, which is right where the Colonial Parkway murders took place. Um, I think that guy could be good for more murders. And he's in jail currently serving a 360-year sentence. That guy's never getting out of jail. And she was talking about him, and she did a very good um, PowerPoint presentation, really interesting photographs. Um, She even warned us, you know, maybe one or two spots that might be a little bit disturbing. Um, we all got through it. But I was sitting there thinking, you know, this guy could be good for other murders. And from my perspective, I thought, you know, it would be so meaningful if he was able to come forward, since he's never getting out of jail, mm-hmm. that if he could come forward and offer some degree of comfort to other families to let them know that he's also responsible for their missing or murdered loved ones. and And yet... From what I've read and heard from experts, it's rare that someone like Howell will actually confess to additional murders. I'm not sure why. Unless there's something to gain, I think. I I don't know. Well, the guy's got 300-something years in prison, right? Yeah, 360 years. Because Because of his confessions? Yeah, I think it's 60 years for six murders, and then he got a 15-year sentence for for I think it's a total of seven. Um, and so he got credit for time served. But I mean, so I think he's got 300 and something years to go. And my guess is he's not getting out of jail anytime soon. 
Yeah, I wonder if that if that makes you uh, not want to <laughs> confess because you were um, punished for it. Well, let or, me like I, I think I think the idea that serial killers just want the notoriety is a little overblown, probably. Well, Anne Howard made a really interesting point in in when I heard this book talk the other night, which I found fascinating. She said he told her he found the death penalty actually provided what my words sounded like a reverse incentive. This is what his thinking was. Once he killed the first prostitute, he raped her, tortured her, and killed her, he he found the death penalty idea very freeing because he realized he was, at that time, Connecticut had the death penalty. They've since done away with it. But at that time, he found it very freeing because he realized after he'd killed his first victim that he was if ever caught, was going to receive the death penalty. So he knew in his mind that at that point, if he was ever caught, he was dead. So he actually well found stockpile. it. Exactly. He actually went out and committed all those other murders with a greater sense of freedom. I never thought about it this way. He actually went out and went out and killed all those other people with a greater sense of freedom because... He knew he was dead if he was ever caught anyway. Playing he, with house money. Yeah, he looks like, at it like he's got nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah which wow. I had never, I guess I still struggle sometimes well, to put myself in the, in the mind of a psychopath, uh, which I guess is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I'd never thought about it. It was like a complete reverse where people insist that the death penalty is going to prevent violent crime, and, you know, I know some people that passionately believe in the death penalty. I'm not among them. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I might reserve the right to change my mind if we ever had a person or persons to focus on in the Colonial Parkway murders. But I found it fascinating that William Devon Howell took the idea of the death penalty and it actually created an incentive once he'd actually crossed the line, he was then free to do anything he wanted because he was going to be dead anyway. And that was before he was even caught. So yeah. that's that's yeah. interesting that that goes into a, a criminal like that's mentality. I wonder, this is like, that's like the best case to not have the death penalty that I've probably ever heard. Right. Because <laughs> it I, doesn't, it actually backfired in that case. And I'm not making the, I'm not making the argument at yeah. this moment. I'm just saying fascinating for me to sit through Anne's excellent presentation um and and then she mentioned that and i sat there and i was like wow yeah because who's the death penalty for it's for someone like that right it's not for the uh the impulsive like person who comes home and their lover is uh in bed with someone else and they shoot crime of passion right it's not for that it's not built for that it's for it's built to kill someone who's killed other people yeah, and they don't think that person can be reformed, which this William Howell would would fit. I would imagine. I I guess, um, but I, I don't know if if the the you know this guy's clearly a sociopath, um, and it's funny you know she went into a significant amount of his background, and you could you know you you had a pretty decent understanding of where this guy you know turned to the not just to the dark side, but I mean. Mm really kind of spooky and it was probably a good presentation for me to sit through um and um but I, I, there were there were some there were some 
moments where I, it was eye opening. So on on that note, um, I, I wonder what do you do you happen to think about this killer sometimes, and do you think about what the killer is doing right now? Yeah, sometimes. What do you think? Uh, what do you picture? Well, um, uh, you know, I, 33 years have gone by. This guy has got to be probably older than I am. Um, so he's got to be in his 60s, I would say. And um, it's entirely possible that he's still alive. He or they are still alive. Um and, you know, I keep thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great if somebody whose circumstances have changed, whether it's him or them or somebody that knows them, um, you know, steps forward. I'd love to see this uh, perpetrator's life upended. Yeah. Now, when you uh, earlier said that when you get information, you will sift through it and you will sort of vet it on your own, but you will always take it to law enforcement after. Do you follow up on your own? Not with law enforcement, but with the person that gave you the information? Um, if it's like sort of a location thing, do you ever travel to go follow up with it? And I'm asking because I know that I, I keep going back to how long it's been and you know why people talk. And it's pretty typical that people don't talk to law enforcement. They'd rather talk to somebody like you with, with information. So you're almost getting... Un, like, like unadulterated information. You're getting, you're getting about as clean of information as possible. Unfiltered. Yeah, yeah. Totally, totally unfiltered. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't been delivered to the police. They didn't go to the police first. They went to you first, and you're the one taking it to the police. So, what's your, what's your obligation at that point? Well, if I, I try not to act like much of an additional filter because you know, look, the FBI doesn't like that that I do this. But, you know, I've really put myself out there, as we've talked about before. You know, I have the same cell phone number I had since the first cell phone I got. I still use the same AOL email address. You know, I have Gmail and other addresses, and I've always had work um, addresses. But I've I've really put myself out there to make myself relatively easy to find. And as we talked about, it's my name's not John Smith, but when your name's Bill Thomas, it's yeah. you guys. Broad, your name's not John Smith. <laughs> well, you guys have really cool, distinctive, hard to pronounce uh, <laughs> Italian names. But for those of us that have, like, you know, stock, you know, Swedish, but <laughs> is it really Scandinavian? Yeah, reindeer star. I didn't know that's that. how it's pronounced. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'll I, take Italian. I mean, they they I, do make great. Jeez, you know, watch my. Well, Color me embarrassed here. Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, I, I met the woman from uh, Sweden True Crime. Um, she does a podcast, and uh, she came to the Chicago uh, True Crime Podcast Festival. Yeah. And, she was and of course, Sweden. she's you know six foot tall and blonde she, and gorgeous. Was, so you yes. wanted to say hello. Yes, beautiful blue eyes. And I was speaking to her for a few minutes. I told her, "Wait, are trans- you Swedish too?" No, I my last name is Italian. Uh, okay, you, you I, hit I, that. I'm not like a complete yeah. chump. No, no, and, and to, <laughs> yeah, to be. Uh, to be fair, you could look at my last name and think it's Italian. It ends with an A. Ends I mean, in a it, yeah. yeah. Ends in a it vowel. ends in a vowel. I yeah. told that uh, that woman that um, that the translation was reindeer star, and she was like, "Yeah, oh, <laughs> this is true." <laughs> yeah, no, that's for true. real. Yeah. yeah, 
But Mine, you can call him Reindeer Star uh, if, you Thomas, if you can't pronounce it. Thomas, Thomas and Thompson are actually the same name. And uh, so ours is boring. Ours is Son, <laughs> son of Tom. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> oh, Reindeer I mean, Star is Tom's way cool cooler. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, people, people have <laughs> to understand, Star. you know, all, all three of us, I think, are from Boston originally. And so in Boston, you know, you're always trying to figure out who people are and where they're from. And so you, people always ask, well, what town are you from? And yep. there's all these towns in eastern Massachusetts. And, and, and then people usually ask where you went to school. And it's not ju- done in a judgmental way, I think. But I think between your ethnicity, where you lived in the, all those towns in and around Boston... And where you went to school, I think, helps people kind of just position, where's this person coming from? I think so. Yeah. And a lot of times, because Boston is kind of a small town, that if you say a town that, that I'm familiar with or I have a friend from, I'm like, oh, you must know oh, yeah. Joey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's funny. When I moved to Los Angeles 12 years ago, 13 years ago now, um, they don't do that, interestingly. Right. Now, everyone's from back east. Yeah, and <laughs> almost everyone's from somewhere else. And... Interestingly, they so they don't ask your hometown usually. The assumption is almost everybody's from somewhere else. Yep. I think this happens a lot when I lived in New York as well. Um, and I know you've lived in Los Angeles. Um, and people don't ask where you went to school. That's an, it's a sort of an East Coast thing. Yeah. But it's the reindeer star thing. That, that's, that's <laughs> what were we talking about before this? <laughs> Which I actually derailed this conversation. <laughs> we talked about the fact that when your name is Bill Thomas, you can be a little hard to find. Yeah. Oh, right. And you yeah. two have very beautiful, distinctive, <laughs> oh, well, you. yes. European-sounding <laughs> names. And, and But the two of you would not, be, would not be hard to find. Right. If someone, let's say, wanted to, you know... Bring it on. Stalk you. Give you some info for a case, perhaps. Now, uh, or if they wanted to, uh, for example, show you a thrill. Oh, boy. Here we go. Oh, my. Wait. <laughs> Long did, story. Did this person show up at your door or anything? No, no. Thankfully uh, not. We, we could show you something um, off air, though. Um, speaking oh of off air, you mentioned that there were a lot of persons of interest in this case. Um, I think you said up to 150? That's what... That's what the FBI agents have told us. There's 150 persons of interest. Now, the experts tell me that in an unsolved case like the Colonial Parkway murders, there are 150 persons of interest. It's probably plus now. Um, but no one's taken off the list. You're yeah. either on the likely list, which is the, or the so-called short list, which I'm that's always guessed is. So. No, the, my guess is that's probably, you know, 10 or 15 oh, names okay. that would be the most likely. I see. Um, and then there might be a bunch of other people that probably are less likely, but whose names have been mentioned in connection with the case. I have joked before, somewhat ruefully, that... Uh, I, there are days when I feel like I know the 150 people. <laughs> I'm sure you've I've, heard that yeah, many you, names, yeah. right? You, there's got to be cross-pollination. Yeah. Well, I could probably rattle off the 10 or 15, you know, most likely names, yeah. uh, you know, off the top of my head, which I don't know if the brother of the murder victim is supposed to, you know— have all these names buzzing around. Well, you head. make there are no rules. You yeah. make the rules here. And and in theory, Bill, you're supposed to be too emotional to investigate this. Yeah, and it, 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 I I suppose, but you know, look, I'm not saying I don't have my emotional moments, but yeah. you know, for the most part, with the passage of time, you're able to get a bit more perspective. Yeah. But you know, we were talking about the this new podcast you're doing on Sheila Shepard, 
and very interesting case. And I and I asked you, you know, how many people are on the short list? And you and you hit me with a really surprisingly small number. And I was like, whoa, you know, there's a situation where investigators with a fresh look and maybe with some help from the two of you can hopefully move that case forward. And the science, the stuff that's going on with forensic genealogy and advanced DNA testing, I mean, in the last two years, never mind five or ten, we've seen significant um, changes and refinements. I can't remember if uh, we asked this the last time, but some of the evidence from the Colonial Parkway murders say uh, the blanket that was covering... um, Lau- is it Lauer and Phelps? Phelps Lauer, right? The blanket that was covering them was that taken? Is does that still exist? Can we get DNA off of off of anything that? Getting straight answers to it's a real good question. I can't give you a good answer. Well, that's probably a good sign, right? Well, there are times oh, yeah. there are times when when I wish the the families and look. I, I'm not directly related to Anna Maria Phelps or Daniel Lauer, so I'm not. A, I don't want to imply that as the so-called leader of the Colonial Parkway murders that that the Virginia State Police has any obligation to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not a. I'm not a family member, but uh, you know I know those families, and I I've asked plenty of questions in in the Thomas Dowski murder and had difficulty getting straightforward answers. Again, the families, we're not trying to insert ourselves in the investigation, but it does get very frustrating to ask questions and be told, oh, we can't tell you that, we can't tell you that, we can't tell you that. You know, in other words, even if just you just want to know, like, do you still have the blanket? Has the blanket been tested? Which I think is a reasonable question coming from my friends in the Phelps and Lauer families. Um, You know, they're not going to answer the question for me. I get that. But they should especially after 30 years. Have they taken any DNA from the that that family? Do you know of? Well, the the um I don't think they have. Now, it's funny. I was in the room in January 2010 at the FBI when they took DNA from the Call and Haley families while we watched, which was interesting. I'd never seen them do the oral swab and you know, take the DNA. And I remember just sort of, you know, collapsing inside because they didn't ask for for the Thomas and Dowski family's DNA. Then about three or so years ago, we got the call. They wanted to come and the FBI wanted to come to our offices, the three brothers, my older brother Richard, then me, and my younger brother Jack, to our respective offices. I was in Los Angeles, Richard in Washington, D.C., Jack in New York, and the FBI agents came and took our DNA. And from my point of view, that's a really good sign um, because that means they have something to compare it They have a reason to take it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And, you know, they're not going to send six agents from the local offices, the field offices, as they call them, and waste a couple of hours of their time just to, you know, keep me satisfied there was a reason why they took this dna and it was for you know elimination purposes so this is like 13 or 14 years ago no this is like three or so years ago oh oh okay three Sorry, yeah I, I confused just, the a, time just a couple of years no, ago kidding. and 
Uh, and I remember I asked uh, our case agent, do we end up in the CODIS system, yeah. <laughs> which is the FBI uh, system for DNA profiles of people who have been convicted of crimes or charged with certain serious crimes and so on. And um, she said no. And she said, you know, and I said, why? And she said, well, you're good guys and we don't suspect you of any other crimes. And I thought, oh. That's probably a good Did you sign. give like an evil laugh? <laughs> <laughs> good thing. Yes. <laughs> my my evil evil uh, career can can continue. Yes. Um, Twirl your mustache. Yes, if they only knew. Um, <laughs> but you know that's that's a really good sign. So um, I know that the four FBI families, if you will, Thomas Dowski, Call Haley. They have taken our DNA. I, you know, it's funny. That's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll try to find out if the Phelps and Lauer families have ever given their DNA. That's interesting. And did you ask them what they had to compare to? I did, and of course, they refused to answer the question. They didn't give you the picture, like the full blown, <laughs> nope, like detailed uh, breakdown of what they were going to start. Comparing no, and to. you know, I'm not proud of this. I, I am an Irishman, and I do have a bit of a temper sometimes. I have lost my temper. A few times when I've asked questions of uh, our investigators at the FBI and, you know, I get the usual, oh, we can't tell you that reply. But it, I understand it. I, you know, I haven't lost my perspective completely, but it, it can be frustrating to just want to know real basic things. Yeah, like was it from a car? Like, was it from well, or, an uh, article of clothing? Well, and and was mostly from my point of view... Have you conducted the latest tests, you know, to the limits of yeah. 2019 technology? Remember, yeah. our evidence all predates, um, you know, so many developments. Um, the, you know, the CODIS system wasn't uh, available. The the APHIS, the, the fingerprint system, wasn't online. DNA hadn't even come out of the lab in, in 1986. So, so many... Uh, significant developments that help move cases forward today weren't even around when our case first started. I mean, it could it could be something like they made uh, an arrest recently on a separate case that might have a similarity or two, and they're trying to compare that person's DNA and uh, sort of minus out the family members' DNA, the people who were killed, the victims, and actually isolate the killer's DNA? I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. almost like, yeah, exactly, isolate it. Like, yeah, yeah. make sure you know which is which. Yeah. Well, and, you know, they asked me questions about, you know, whether or not I'd, I'd spent time in my sister's 1980 Honda Civic, Kathy's car, and I said yes. And so it was, you know, I said, we I spent many pleasant hours bombing up and down the East Coast <laughs> between uh, uh, the Naval Academy where Kathy graduated and my parents house up in Lowell Massachusetts and um, uh, and my brothers as well um, so obviously you know you start to be able to put together well they could be looking at potential evidence from yeah uh, you know inside the car where Kathy and Becky's bodies were found now just a few months ago there was an article that I saw that you forwarded out on social media it was about an arrest that that was made in um, I believe on the Colonial Parkway, if I'm not mistaken, or very close. Well, it's, uh, an arrest was made of of a man um, on 695, right outside Baltimore. Okay, this was a police impersonator yeah. who had pulled someone over on kind of one of those beltways around um, 
Baltimore and a, to his misfortune, a real um, Maryland state trooper was driving by and he saw that this car outfitted with lights and a man wearing a uniform that, you know, at a glance, he was probably on the other side of the road, um, looked like some sort of law enforcement officer. And I love this image. The Maryland state trooper, I think, turned around from the other side of the road, um, swung back around, pulls up behind this guy who's in the middle of what appears to be a traffic stop, pulling over someone um, along the highway. So the real cop interrupts what turns out to be a fake cop, police impersonator, in the middle of of a pulling someone over on, on the highway. And this guy was armed and had a, you know, a sidearm and a, a taser and a uniform, which turned out to be a security guard's uniform. But he had all the police equipment and the handcuffs and the whole nine yards. And, of course, they arrested him. Now, this guy turned out to be from the Newport News, Virginia area. And he's in his 50s, so he's old enough mm. to have been around during the Colonial Parkway murders era. And there's always been a, a theory, it's just a theory, but that the four double homicides in the Colonial Parkway murders to many investigators feel like a traffic stop or like yeah. or like the couple was stopped and then someone rolled up on them. And I, I remember they've used the expression that even as early on as uh, Kathy and Becky's murder, the first murder, they said, we think your sister and Ms. Dowski were approached by an authority figure. And I stopped them and said, I'm sorry, we're confused. What's an authority figure? And they said, by that we mean law enforcement. Mm. And so this guy would have kind of fit that type of profile. In other words, he's obviously not law enforcement. He's actually a security guard. But he was presenting as a law enforcement officer and would have been old enough and grew up in the area near the Colonial Parkway. Mm. What was his plan when he pulled well, those people over? I, right? On we don't the know. Highway. Yeah, we don't know. Why well, are you impersonating a cop on the highway? Why are you doing it at all? I mean, well, I, 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 but I think <laughs> I think the the answer is to get the person that you've pulled over into a position where you can do something to them. But what? I, on I the don't highway. know. But see, the two of it's you, pretty brazen. The two right? of you are applying your non sociopathic <laughs> brain here. Right. I'm just saying, when I do it, I go down a back road. Well, and the Colonial Parkway, and it's own spooky way is this 23 mile long ribbon of land and i've been out there at night there is not a single traffic light or or overhead light Mm. or anything it is pitch black out there and so that's a place where you could pull somebody over and unless you were extremely unlucky and a national park service ranger or a york county virginia sheriff's department car came along you probably could have an interaction with someone uh, that you'd pulled over or you'd you know come up behind. Whereas on 695 outside Baltimore, I'm not sure that was necessarily the smartest move. Now, what's the deal with this guy? That that. Well, of course, again, you, it's hard to get an update. I spoke to the um, uh, the Maryland State Police, and it's funny. I, I talked to a really nice supervisor. There was open to taking my call and so on, but he knew nothing about the Colonial Parkway murders, which is, you know, admittedly a few hours south, um, but never heard of the case. And I just, you know, I hipped him to the fact that this guy is from the area of the Colonial Parkway murders. He's in his 50s. He's old enough to have been 
involved in a case where the possibility of a police impersonator has been mentioned over and over again. I just wanted you to know that. He was you know, appreciative. I said, here's their, our contact at the FBI office, et, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I'm not saying this guy is is involved, but I think it's certainly worth a look. Yeah, I just, oh, I, yeah. I don't like the idea that they just like, I don't know what they charged him for officially, but I imagine it's impersonating an officer. It's just not, it's just not enough. Does it say there what they charged him with? At the time, there were, uh, this guy's name is Timothy Irvin Tr- Trivet. Um, it's, you know, been in the papers and, and so on. I, I think he was originally brought up on, on gun charges okay. because he didn't have a permit for the, a the revolver he was wearing. Yeah, but what's the attempt? That's what I'm saying. Like, it's attempted something. What's the attempt? He's been well, charged I, with impersonating a police officer and multiple handgun charges. I, I know. I, that, that's good. That's a good start. But what what the heck was he planning to do? Well, you know, one of the things I was very struck by is in, in a number of states around the country, and this needs to be changed, impersonating a police officer is a misdemeanor. It's too common. And Way you, too common. When you think about it. I always it, laugh at that. That's insane. No, I, it, I, I think all of us, when we're out, you know, traveling the highways and byways of America, if we get pulled over by a police officer, we have to feel that this is really a police officer. And then, of course, it's also very important that our interaction with that police officer be in a, in a respectful manner and in a non-threatening manner. And I know we've, we, we the country, have failed sometimes in that regard, too. That's probably the understatement of the year. But um, how frightening is it? To think that, let's say you are in a lonesome stretch of road like the Colonial Parkway or a lot of rural highways across the country, and you get pulled over, you'd at least like to believe that the person pulling you over is a sworn law enforcement officer and not some nut job with a gun and a blue light on the dashboard of his car. And I'm not stopping that easily. Single gun. Guy, not, the guy had guns. Yeah. I'm not stopping unless I know it's a cop, and that that means that's a marked car for me oh. personally. It's certainly marked car, lights on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps a siren. Yeah. For several years, by the way, people were advised regarding the Colonial Parkway, which is lonesome, were advised actually to not allow themselves to be pulled over until they got to a place where they could get off the Colonial Parkway. And get to a place that had lights and people and and so on. And, you know, it's terrifying, I think, especially for women who are traveling uh, to think, I'm going to get pulled over and I'm not going to be sure whether this person is really a police officer. 